from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. This is not your father's musical theater, or at least not your grandfather's. This is Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the highly idiosyncratic 1998 musical about a punk rocker transplanted from East Germany to America after a botched sex chain surgery. It became and remains a genuine cult hit playing all over the world, including, a few years ago, a a Tony Award-winning revival on Broadway that starred its co-creator, John Cameron Mitchell. He also directed the movie version of Hedwig and three other films since. You've also probably seen him acting on television. He's had recurring roles on Girls and Mozart in the Jungle and lately on The Good Fight. And now John Cameron Mitchell has created a new highly idiosyncratic musical, a 10-episode musical podcast. It's called Anthem, Homunculus, and it's a collaboration with composer Brian Weller, in which John's co-stars include Patti Lapone and Glenn Close. I spoke with both co-authors about their musical, the premise of which is a guy hosting a kind of online radio show to raise money for his cancer treatment, a guy played by John. My name is Kian, which means head in Gaelic, and I have a brain tumor. But I'm having a good day. I've got a lot of energy, and I want all five, four of you still listening to know I will remain online and on this porch till you cough up the hundred grand I need to cut this fucker out. <laughs> or till I die. Whichever comes first. Now, I wrote this song for my tumor. It's actually a conversation between my tumor and me. Because I figured if my tumor could sing, it might sing something like this. I'm the mold on your bread, the prayer blows on your head, the pause in the joke that makes you cry till you choke. As a lover, I'm unsurpassed, but I come first and you go last. Uh, that is John Cameron Mitchell in Anthem, Homunculus. Um, so, John uh, and Brian, this framing device, this this audio podcast telephone, telephone. Uh, um, where did that come from? It came from the stupid reality of America um, where friends of ours, and we all know someone who's had to crowdfund their health care uh, in this absurd rich country with priorities upside down, and also, I've been on tour doing the songs and stories of Hedvig on concert tour uh, to help pay for my mom's care. You know, she has Alzheimer's. And this isn't a necessarily political piece, but that framing device of a kind of upside-down America uh, is where he lives. And, and it, the whole thing is kind of an alternative autobiography. Uh-huh. It's what I might be like if I hadn't left my small town. Right. Uh, so, as a maker of films and live theater, how and why did you end up doing this as a podcast? Well, it started out actually as a possible sequel to Hedvig and the Angry Inch. But Hedvig already had so much baggage, so I decided to extract Hedvig like a benign tumor. 
and focus on it a, a closer to me. Uh-huh. Um, but because it was so autobiographical, it was very emotionally draining. So I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this eight shows a week. So then I thought television. Right. Um, and wrote it as such. The whole 10 episodes uh-huh. went to Hollywood and we... Uh, my friend Michael Stuno uh, invented the term resting pitch face, which is the face That's funny. that people hold when you're telling them something they don't want to buy. And <laughs> That's a very funny Yawning phrase. on the inside. And we saw them all glaze over respectfully because they couldn't place it. So Topic Studios immediately, re- when L.A. says no, New York says yes, immediately says, let's do this as a podcast. But I'm in retrospect, really glad that we were turned down by Hollywood because we got to make this in the dark, so to speak, and we could make something organically strange the way Stephen Trask and I did with Hedvig. You know, Hedvig was too weird to be a career move. Right. You know? <laughs> oh, uh, Brian, how did you enter this collaboration? How did that come to be? We met in Portland, Oregon, 2011, and uh, I was working the venue, and John was um, hosting a gay tsunami of a party. It was, I was DJing and he was working the rock venue. And we hit it off. He was writing his novels. I had my own stuff going on. Although you're, you're invisible on the internet. We tried to find you. You're, you're just like, you're like a, you, you have no fing, digital fingerprints. His plan worked. My plan. Um, so we started working in various capacities. On paper, I'd say it was assistant, but in practice it was more like psychoanalyst and then um, we did How to Talk to Girls in London and I wrote six songs or something. That's How to Talk to Girls at Parties, John's movie about extraterrestrials in the 1970s London punk scene. Yeah, he was assisting me but the composer fell out and he stepped in and the songs were fantastic and when I came out of it I, I was like, why am I seeking a composer in the stars and then when there's a brilliant person right next to me. Um, Brian, were you, when did you first encounter uh, Hedvig? I, I presume you, you knew of it, had heard it, had seen it before I, you guys yeah, ever. I think it came out when I was in eighth grade. And, it's a um, good time to see it. And I was, I was reading it. in the Seattle Times about it. And I think the way they were writing about it, I wasn't sure if it was a documentary and if John was actually a woman. But yeah. no, I, I don't think I'd seen it. But that probably helped. I mean, even working in the music venue business, it's best not to listen to the bands that are about to come in so you can just treat them like human beings. right. But, I mean, I was privy that it was an experience that was both emotionally deep and rich as well as intellectually stimulating, and that was right right up my alley. Right. The show will resume very, very shortly, but first, I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at... Studio 360 show. And now, back to the podcast. In this show, are there, given that you began it as this Hedwig sequel, are there remnants of that initial inception that remain? Yes, there's some lines that I actually tested out on Broadway uh, that are, you know, the more the double entendre drag inspired, you know, I, my character talks about disaster baiting and, you know, had a bad year. He hit his bottom. His bottom hit him back. So there was, you know, the drag. But a dumb. But a cat. So a lot of that, those gags are still in there. They're Hedvig. They're also right. my queer Borscht Belt yeah. sensibility. Yeah. Where is the queer Borscht Belt, by the way? Where does um, that, where? It's, I think it sort of goes from Christopher Street into 
to Williamsburg. Yes. <laughs> Uh, in this show, much of it, to the degree I know of your life, it is your life. I mean, there are fantastical things that happen yeah. um, with, you know. Hallucinations. Hallucinations and so forth. But is it otherwise pretty John Cameron Mitchell's life? Well, it's, it's interesting because Brian and I, when we started writing, we did a real Beat Generation road trip to write. And in fact, capped it off by writing our first draft and the demos in William Burroughs' house. Which is in Lawrence, Kansas. It's in Lawrence. I lived in Junction City, Fort Riley, which was nearby. And as a kid in the Army base, very Catholic, you know, secretly queer, you know, the only thing for a thousand miles that was punk and queer was Burroughs 40 minutes away in Lawrence, where he retired. And I never made it there, as my dad called it, the liberal house on the prairie. And on my way to my 35th high school reunion... I knocked on Burroughs' door, and a guy named Tom King, who was the caretaker, was like, what? You know, it was a classic, you know, Burroughs kind of buddy. And I'm like, well, I'm writing a musical that might take place on this porch, sir. He's like, hmm, never heard that one before. So he showed us, showed me in. He's like, there's the bullet hole in the bathroom ceiling that Bill shot off when he was taking a dump, and here's his Dotson in the bushes, and... And then we met James, his partner, uh, Burroughs' partner, and he said, please come and write in the house. So Brian was making demos in the house. I was writing in the famous garden. And the place itself inspired scenes. You know, at one point my character is whisked away to Burroughs' house, and we sneak in and break into his abandoned Dotson and do ayahuasca in there. And Burroughs is a character, a kind of a spirit. I, I didn't uh, see that coming. <laughs> William S. Burroughs, who died in 1997 or so, coming into your show. They'll find you after you're dead. I tried to get Bill to read my puerile attempts at existential memoir. They'll find you in your FBI files and self-renewing porn subscriptions. But he was far more interested in basement target practice. That will outlive you like dead Cambodian cities. Well, he, you know, is our... Uh, great Cassandra, you know, our, our cackling Cassandra, which is like, we're all fucked, you know, we're all on our way out. I mean, he really is. <laughs> when you take Amer American individualism to the, you know, to the natural conclusion, it is William Burroughs. Correct. Or one way, but yes, yes absolutely. One way. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so taking autobiographical material in your early 30s, as you did with Hedvig, it must be different this time in your mid-50s to be revisiting your youth in, in this way. Yeah, because, you know, the second half of your life is suffused with death and mortality and, oh, what happened to me and how much time is left and let's see if we can parse it, we can think about I mean, maybe this is a time when people think about autobiographies. Uh, I, I considered writing a traditional one or doing this, and this seemed less lonely. This is not only autobiographical, very intimate, personal, uh, difficult s stuff. How was that as an experience? I have to say probably the impetus for doing it, and I don't know why I was so bent on doing it, because it is painful to do, was the death of my boyfriend, uh, Jack Steeb. He was an alcoholic, and he eventually died from a drug combination in 2004. And this character of Gyro is a incarnation of him. Gyro, your character's love interest. Yes. Um, 
I lost a brother when I was 14. My my dad was an army general, played by Dennis O'Hare. You know, his journey is in there. My mom was a Scottish artist teacher who was also an anti-abortion activist, and Glenn Close plays her. My aunt is a nun, super liberal, awesome nun in Chicago, and Patti LuPone plays her. So at times, the hard stuff was hard to, to relive, and doing it last year wasn't fun. Like I, It kind of like shut me down emotionally, but I always had the thing. You always had the podcast to keep me warm. You know, that was my, my lover. And now that it's ended, I can date again, uh-huh. literally, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I feel free. Um, these stars, Glenn Close, Patti LuPone, Cynthia Erivo, Laurie Anderson, Marion Cotillard. How did you get such an all-star cast? Well, Just they're all people or? that I know. Uh-huh. Um, some are friends and some are acquaintances. And they were all— Nice bunch of friends. Yeah. Well, they were all big fans of Hedvig. And when you just say, you know, honey, you don't have to shave. It's two days' work. Bring your dog. <laughs> Whatever hair you have yeah. is fine. Then they're like, ooh, it's just pure acting. Right. And— they're all theater people, too. So it's like it's put on, let's put put on, on a show. show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you are going to perform a song right here live uh, <gasps> from the show. Uh, explain what you're going to play and um, set the scene. What's the, what, 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 where, where does this come? What's it doing? Uh, the song is called The End of Love. The End of Love it comes around the midpoint of the story where Kean is sort of reflecting on a wide uh, span of his life from basically becoming an adult to a point where he's submitting some kind of defeat. It's a little bit of also a breakup song with God. And I grew up super Catholic, and Jesus was my first crush. And uh, there were key moments when he wasn't there anymore. You know, all those things that kind of push you away— from religion and make you redefine God or erase, let go of God, I prefer the redefinition. Let's hear End of Love. When I think about you I think it's all been said before the words rang true What were they for? You were a small disappointment Careless hand on the thigh Sweet inferred words That were never implied Who could frame the fearful asymmetry Between lust and love Is God the synapse or the thought Caught between what you want and what you bought Are you the final thread that binds the failing world to me? Baby, is that all you want to be? The end of love is a terrace grief that's like a trip down the mountain that fills an ocean. I carry you over the water You grow heavier with every step Until you drag me down as sure as Ophelia's dress 
grant me existence When a random thought of me Shot through your mind like a wasp Right through a web You clothed me in life But my garment strangles me like Desdemona Struggling with fortune and seeking a lover's eyes Is a mayfly tenure The best that you can offer me You're so wisely absent from past or future But to me, you're nothing but a suture To prevent the blending Though my heart seems to be rending now The longer I sit in my lonely room Honey, you're the only lover that I believe in The end of love is a guarantee that no one will ever Away from me And though I dance with a ghost No one else comes close To how, to how, to how you love me here in Studio 360. That was John Cameron Mitchell singing Brian Weller on guitar and Brian Cavanaugh-Strong on piano, playing End of Love from the new podcast Anthem Homunculus, including Latin lyrics. I always am a sucker for Latin in a song. Six Machina. Exactly. (laughs) So uh, that's called End of Love, or The End of Love. The End of Love. Um, I couldn't help but think of the Hedwig song, uh, The Origin of Love, Self-homage? Hedwig was about the first half of your life, which is who am I and do I like that person? And the second half of your life is usually what do I do with that knowledge with the time I have left? And uh, they say youth is wasted on the young, but sometimes age is wasted on the old, you know, and you're not taking advantage of what you know uh, or what you don't know because, you know, you seem to know a lot when you're young and and then you know less and less. Right. Uh, writing the music. Uh, did you, Brian, write the music and, and you, John, wrote the lyrics? How did that work? Well, we started uh, a little game, which was to try and write 20 songs in 12 hours, bringing no pre-existing lyrics or melodic elements in. And with that, it would be me writing the music and John in another room writing the lyrics. And Brian really broke my block of saying... I. I that I couldn't write songs because I couldn't play an instrument, you know. But 
I realized that with his help, we could write wonderful things. And we wrote we wrote songs for my mom. We would write songs for people's birthdays too. And uh, Glenn actually wants us to write a song for a special event she's doing. I, I want somebody to hang around with me who can make up for my lack of musicality and just like be that tool. I'll be here, Kurt. <laughs> okay, thank you. Having a, a series rather than a two-hour show certainly gave you freedom to like, yeah, a little punk, a little jazz, a little this, a little emo that you couldn't have done except in a sort of 10-episode thing, right? Or a multi-episode Well, I mean, Hedvig had a pretty eclectic score, though. Not this, not... Not as eclectic as this. That was more in the, informed by the great 70s, you know, Bowie, Lou Reed, John Lennon. In this case, we didn't want to limit ourselves, and Brian had the capacity, you know, to, to do all this. For example, Glenn Close uh, plays my mom, and in a hallucination, she is nailing herself to a cross. I want a hug. She's like, I'm nailed to a cross. Uh, and then she sings a kind of punk, you know, misfits-type song called Dissolve Me, which is all about you will forgive me or else. And she'd never sung punk, but it was just right for her character. Um, Now, we are already at the stage in podcast evolution where podcasts are podcasts, and then they become important television shows and movies. Do you expect or hope that that will be— That 360 becomes— Yes, that's what I'm asking. No, that that anthem, homunculus, uh, becomes a TV series. Well, what do you think? What would you want— I'm open to anything. I love this medium. I want to make more. I want to encourage more friends to make Great. fictional stuff. Um, Anthem, we want every season to be a completely different musical written by different people. So we just did the first season, but we want other people, Kendrick Lamar, to make our next season. Oh, that's interesting. So it'll be Anthem colon something else. Yes, like and American it'll be Horror not Story. Right. We well, would just be idea. the godfathers. I mean, huh. it does take a while to create you know, something like this. And sometimes regular music people don't understand the amount of work. You know, they're like, but right. I wrote the song. And like, yeah, but right. it has to fit into the story. I think once it's out, we'll, we'll have a lot of people wanting to do it. Uh, this was a pleasure. John thank Cameron you. Mitchell, Brian Weller. Thanks, uh, Kurt. Thank you very much. Reminded after ho- however many years ago that we last spoke, John, uh, why and how much I like you. So oh, thanks for coming thank back. Thank you so much. By the way, it was four years ago we talked here last. Anthem Homunculus was produced by Topic Studios, and it's available on the Luminary Subscription Podcast Network, to which you can get a free month-long trial subscription now. New episodes of the show are being released through May 21st, and after that, it'll all be there. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 